last week we started our new sermon series in the book of Philippians, and the subtitle we have called The Journey of a, a Joyful Life. Last week we looked at chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, and we learned that Paul had written this letter to the believers at Philippi. And this church was very precious to Paul, probably his favorite church because of the the biblical fellowship that they enjoyed in partnering for the sake of the gospel. Paul wrote this letter to the church that he had planted in about 51 AD. And at the time of this letter, the church was now 10 years old in in 62 AD. And um, he was unable to visit them because he was in prison. So he, he sent them a letter in response to a financial gift that he had received from them. We will see that in chapter 4. He wanted to encourage this church and his burden for the Philippians. And I think for all Christians in all ages is that we continue to put the gospel first in our lives. So today we are going to look at chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 18. If you would stand with me as we read that portion of Scripture together out of respect to God's Word. First, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 18. This is God's Word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand in what Paul was rejoicing, how he was abounding in joy. Help us, Lord, to have this joy. Help us, Lord, to put the gospel first and foremost in our lives as we as we study this book together. We pray that your spirit would teach us. We pray that he would open our eyes. We pray that he would convict sin and that he would change us and grant us repentance where repentance is needed. But also, Lord, we pray that you would comfort those that need to be comforted today with this joy that is for those who love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. So in his book titled Battling Unbelief, John Piper tells a story about Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a pastor in the Church of England for 54 years, from 1782 to 1836 at Trinity Church in Cambridge. And he was appointed to his church by a bishop against the will of the people. The people in that church opposed him. 
not because he was a, a bad preacher or a bad person, but the opposite, because he was an evangelical preacher. He loved the gospel. He preached the gospel unashamedly. He believed the Bible. He called people for conversion. He preached against sin. He preached for holiness and for world evangelization. And for 12 years, the people refused to let him give the Sunday afternoon sermon. And during that time, they boycotted the Sunday morning service. And during that time, they used to have pews that people paid for. And what these people did is they locked their pews. They locked the door to the pews so nobody could sit in the pews. And for 12 years, people had to sit in the aisles or they had to sit in the rows where there weren't any pews on the floor listening to the preacher. And Simeon began with 12 years of intense opposition. And this ended up lasting 54 years. But Charles Simeon was committed to the gospel. He was committed to Christ, and he endured all kinds of opposition for the sake of advancing the gospel. And Charles Simeon was a little like the Apostle Paul, who endured all kinds of hardships for the sake of advancing the gospel. And Paul's circumstances were enough to make any man unhappy. And yet we find him abounding in joy, we see in verse 18. And the title of my sermon this morning is Abounding in Joy. And I think that this passage teaches us in order to find true, genuine joy, we need to put the advance of the gospel at the center of our ambitions. My first point this morning we see in verse 12 to verse 13, and that is simply Paul's report. Paul's report. Now, if you remember the, the context of this uh, letter, the book of Acts describes the Apostle Paul's missionary journey and the churches that he had planted along the way. Remember the trials, remember the, the persecutions that he faced. Remember in Acts chapter 21, he was falsely accused in Jerusalem by his own Jewish countrymen. And shortly after that, he was nearly killed by a religious mob and he ended up in the Roman prison. He was falsely accused of disturbing the peace and he escaped flogging by pleading that he was a Roman citizen. And you remember, his whole case was a mockery of justice. In Acts chapter 23, we saw how he was made the subject of, of unjust and unprovoked insult and shame. And then in chapter 24 and 25, he was maliciously misrepresented. And, and a chapter before that, in 23, we read about a plot to, to kill him. And then in chapter 4, he was kept in prison because the Roman politicians were concerned about their popularity and money. And even in the suffering, there was still more to come. In chapter 27, we saw the trial of the storm at sea where his, where his life hung by a thread. And eventually when he, he reached Rome, he was bound together with the company of the, the condemned, bound by a chain and destined to drag out at least another two years under house arrest. And this is where we find ourselves now. This is where Paul is now. Paul is writing to the Philippian church while he is under house arrest, still waiting for a trial. 
And even though he's under house arrest, um, he doesn't have the luxuries that any person living in a house would. He is constantly chained to a Roman soldier. His future is still very, very uncertain. He has no assurance that he will ever be a free man again. And Paul looked on all that had transpired and he wrote in verse 12, look there in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And all that's happened to me, as we've seen in, in Acts, this is what he writes. He says, I, I look at my situation. He says, I look at my personal circumstances and I'm overjoyed. I'm amazed. I'm, I'm really blown away. Don't worry, he says, about me. You know what's happening, he says. The gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing. And Paul goes on to explain how the gospel was advancing. Look at verse 13. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial God were the emperor's God, the praetorian God. They consisted of almost 9,000 soldiers. Each man was handpicked. They had to be of Italian Roman birth. Um, these guards received double pay and they received special privileges. This was no ordinary soldier. And each soldier was an officer. They ranked as a centurion who were in charge of, of hundreds of other soldiers. And these soldiers had great influence in the, the Roman state. And here was Paul chained to these soldiers. And most of us would have thought, you know, what a, what a restriction. How is he supposed to proclaim Christ with this type of opposition and restriction? But Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying, what an opportunity. He says here, I've got a, a captive audience. He says, every four hours or so, they, they change the God, and, and I get to preach the gospel all over again to somebody else. They thought Paul was the captive, but Paul understands here that really he has the, the captive audience listening to him. But these soldiers weren't ordinary soldiers. These were, these were worldly, battle-torn Roman soldiers. They were tough. They were even accused criminals. And imagine the difference that they saw in this prisoner. Imagine the difference that these Roman soldiers saw in this prisoner. And for one thing, his, his attitude was different. He never complained. He never bad-mouthed the system. Instead, he was always singing. He was always praying. And he was always praising the Lord. I'm sure these Roman soldiers must have met all sorts of interesting people that had come to, to visit the Apostle Paul. Some had come from far corners of the, the empire. They had heard about Paul. Paul had dictated letters to different churches, answering their, their questions with, with wisdom. And they observed and listened to all of this. They heard him talk about God and how God wants Christians to live. They heard him pray specific, heartfelt, personal prayers to God who was very much alive. And besides, this prisoner took an interest in the, 
in the guards as people as well, not just as soldiers. He asked about their families. He asked about their backgrounds and their thoughts about various issues. He prayed for their needs. He told them how they could know the living God and, and, gave and, and how God would have their sins forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of these rough soldiers began getting saved. Some of these rough soldiers began to transform in their thinking and in their hearts as he spoke to them. You can imagine how this word must have spread beyond just the, the soldiers, just beyond the imperial guard. And it tells us later on, even to members of Caesar's household, some of whom believed. And this was because of the, the guards that, that Paul was preaching to and how they would speak and tell people about what they had heard and how the gospel continued to multiply. And Paul was proving to be such an extraordinary prisoner that I'm sure stories about him began to circulate around the palace where the Purgatorian God was, was situated. Not only stories about him, but the gospel story about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, it is all worth it. And Paul says, the gospel is advancing. This is a wonderful opportunity, he says. There has been an advance in the circulation of the gospel because I am a prisoner, because I am in chains. Can I make one application here? I think some of you, like Paul, are in situations that you, you never planned to be in. He planned to go to Rome. He always wanted to go there, but he didn't want to go in chains. Maybe you're in a confining situation where you feel bound by chains. Maybe it's a difficult marriage where, which you didn't plan on. Maybe you're chained to, to a house full of children. Maybe it's a family problem. It could be a job problem. Maybe it's a difficult job or the lack of a job that you have. It could be a personal problem over which you have no control. Maybe it's a health problem or a situation that you've just been thrust into with no choice on your part. Paul, Paul's joyful example shows us that if we use these chains for the advance of the gospel to proclaim Christ, there is fruitful, joyful consequences. Fruitful, joyful consequences. And maybe you are asking, well, how can we make our chains a channel for proclaiming Christ? Well, one Christian pastor, Stephen Cole, in his sermon from the same text, he gives a, a great answer. He says, first, say no to the self-life, to seek in your own way, your own happiness, your own will. Say no to a grumbling, complaining spirit. And second, say yes to the gospel as first in your life by understanding and believing it and by proclaiming Jesus in every situation by your cheerful attitude of trust in Him. And as He gives opportunity, by your words of witness. You'll find that by so losing your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you'll find true happiness both for time and for all eternity. Which leads to my second point. We see in verse 14 to verse 17, Paul's reaction. It turns out that there were two reactions here. 
first concerning his friends and second concerning his foes. In verse 14 and verse 16, we see Paul's reaction concerning his friends. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And again in verse 16, referring to these same friends, he says, They do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's proclamation of Christ through his attitude and words in this difficult situation not only resulted in witness to these lost soldiers, but it also encouraged many of the Roman Christians that were already there. Previously, they had lacked the courage to bear witness of Christ for fear of being laughed at or fear of being persecuted. But when they saw the power of the gospel for salvation to these soldiers, and even to people in Caesar's household, they took courage and they began to talk fearlessly to others about the word of God. Now our walk, especially our attitude, always has an effect on others. Not just on the lost, but also on the Lord's people. And if we're cheerfully trusting in the, the loving sovereignty of God in the midst of trials as as Paul did, we proclaim the reality of faith in Christ, both to the lost and to the saved. And lost people will want to know why we're different, why we don't complain like everybody else does in, in difficult situations. And the Lord's people who are discouraged will see our faith in the midst of our trials and, and be encouraged to trust Him and, and bear witness for Him. But we see another reaction here, not concerning his foes, but concerning, so not concerning his friends, but concerning his foes in verse 15. Paul wrote in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then he continues in verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me and in my imprisonments. So who are these people that he's referring to? Who are these selfish, envious people? Well, these aren't heretics. These aren't false teachers that Paul was talking about. The preachers that Paul was referring to in his immediate context were from the Christians at Rome. These were the Christians in Rome. He's talking about brothers who are preaching Christ, but from a wrong motive, from envy and rivalry. And these people probably magnified their own ministry by, by putting Paul down. They were jealous of Paul's ministry. They heard about Paul and they heard about his suffering for Christ. And Paul was probably very popular at this point. And people in Rome were praying for him fervently. But remember, Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. The Rome was already there when, when Paul reached. And here suddenly comes this apostle who's suffering for the cross of Christ, and people start to pay attention to him rather than the, the, the leaders there in Rome, the Roman church. And they start to listen to Paul, and maybe those who had authority in the, the Roman church start to see their power being lost to the, this apostle who, who comes now in chains. So when they preach, they try to undercut Paul's ministry for personal reasons. 
And the word envy is used here. The more they speak, the more their own ways are justified, and the more Paul is made to, to look foolish. And Paul may have been hurt by their motives. He had every reason to be, to be hurt here. But nevertheless, look there. Paul says because they were preaching the gospel, because they were proclaiming the true Christ, he was glad. He was glad that the gospel was advancing. For Paul, that was enough. He wasn't concerned about his feelings here. He wasn't even concerned about his reputation. What he was concerned about was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anything else. More than anything else. He was glad that the gospel was advancing. Which leads to my third and final point we see in verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Here is Paul's rejoicing. He is rejoicing in this. Paul's focus is not his situation. Paul's focus is not his reputation. Paul's focus is the gospel. His ambition was the advance of the gospel. That is what he, he lived and he breathed for. And that is why he rejoiced when Christ was proclaimed. Christian author and commentator, Dr. Don Carson, he, he put it this way. He says, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. And then he asks the questions, what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these is wrong. None is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's main objective, the advance of the gospel, is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. Those are important questions. Is the advance of the gospel first and foremost in your ambitions? Now maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, that's a nice idea, but... But it doesn't apply to me. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm not called to be a missionary. I'm not called to be an evangelist. I'm just a, a simple member. I try to earn a decent living and, and raise my, my family. But I'm not called to proclaim Christ as Paul was. Well, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that argument. You don't need to be a preacher or a missionary or a full-time Christian worker to fulfill this ambition. Jesus' words apply not only to the Apostle Paul, but to every Christian in every sphere of life. We are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a construction worker, 
whether you're a business executive, whether you're a, a housewife, a student, or whatever you do, your objective should be to live your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. You put the gospel at the center of your ambitions when you orient your life, your vocation, your calling, and even your leisure to see the gospel advanced. I know some friends of mine who, every time they plan a holiday, they are intentional about not wasting their money on leisure, but using their vacation to go and encourage some missionaries on a mission field somewhere in the world. And often they would phone me and say, Gareth, do you know somebody in this country? Do you know somebody in there? We want to go and we want to encourage missionaries. Being intentional, reorienting their life to make sure that the gospel is advanced. I know another family, another couple who had retired and they sold everything that they had and they, they bought a small little flat and every holiday they used to lock up this flat and they used to go around the world encouraging missionaries. They came to India and encouraged Kerry and I a number of times using their retirement money so that they could still advance the gospel in their retirement, in their old age, being intentional. Let me bring this together as we conclude this message. You know, there are people all around us who are looking for happiness. Everybody wants happiness, but most people seek it in the wrong way. They assume that happiness comes through through good circumstances. So they set out to improve their circumstances. They set out to improve their bank balance. They set out to improve their portfolio. If they're single, they seek a spouse and a happy marriage. If they're married but unhappy, they get a divorce and they look for, for someone else who can make them happier. If they're married and they're childless, then they seek to have children, thinking that will make them happy. If they're married with children who are giving them problems, in their, then they really don't know what to do. <laughs> if they're poor, they seek to get rich. And if they're rich, they discover their money doesn't give them what they're really looking for and what they really need. But as Christians, we have the answer that people are looking for. We have the only genuine hope that people need. And as Paul's life teaches us, happiness is found in Christ and living for Him in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. I want to finish by reading you an article that I read this week from the Gospel Coalition by Robert Brown, who is a missionary in the Middle East here somewhere. And he says, I'll send this article out on our WhatsApp group, but he says, during a recent trip to visit relatives in the Far East, a young Syrian professional named Ali was invited to go to church by his foreign Christian wife. And much to her surprise, he agreed to go to the service with her, even though he'd previously refused. And Ali later reflected, I was very unhappy. The harder I worked to get closer to God through performing prayers and, and rituals, the further I felt from him. I had no peace. I had no joy. I had no happiness. I couldn't rest or sleep. I was depressed. I was anxious. And during the service, I asked God to give me rest, give me peace and joy. And I felt different, and I wanted to learn more. 
and after returning to the home in the Middle East, Ali asked his wife to take him to church again. And shocked by his request, she took Ali to the church that she attended. And after the service, Ali approached Ted, an elder, and said, I want to become a believer. And Ted cautiously questioned Ali about his statement and requested they study the Bible together. Within a short time, Ali believed the gospel message and became a follower of Jesus and was radically changed. He's now a member of this church. A few months later, Mo, an Iranian Muslim, visited our city, came to the same church with believing relatives. And when Mo and I met at the start of the service, I introduced him to Ali. And we invited Mo to discover the truth of Jesus through Bible study. And much to Ali's surprise, I asked him to co-lead the study with me since they came from the same religious background, and he humbly accepted. And Ali taught the scriptures, and after six studies over two weeks, Mo decided to follow Christ. And today, Mo and Ali both are full of excitement for the gospel and are faithfully growing in grace and maturity through discipleship. And two weeks after these events, four more individuals from the region attended our church, requesting to know more about the gospel message. And he says, all that is happening in the Middle East causes some to question their faith and to seek for the truth. Ali and others are studying scripture with these seekers, even as I write. And there is great joy among all those involved as the gospel message continues to bring individuals from the Middle East, from darkness, and into God's glorious light. He goes on to say, there are many such stories regarding Muslims in the Middle East encountering believers and searching for the truth. And they share their new faith quietly due to the harsh penalties for leaving Islam. And some meet in secret house groups while others become members of a recognized church. And local group leaders and believers face the risk of arrest, jail, torture, or death as they count the cost for following Christ. Each country has its own stories and circumstances. But he goes on to say, despite great obstacles, the gospel message continues to advance. Those of us who live and serve in the Middle East stand in awe of how God uses the chaos to purposefully call people from every nation to worship the Lamb. As such events unfold, it's clear that no particular ministry, strategy, person, or group can claim any credit for what is happening. God God works in such amazing ways that he alone gets the glory. And then he concludes, I encourage each reader to consider how you can be involved in what God is doing in the Middle East. Ask yourself, what can I do from my home, from my church, or my office that could help advance the gospel message in the Middle East? Well, I was very encouraged to read this article. And I was reminded again of the power of the gospel. And I was reminded again of the credible opportunity the Lord has given us to be living here in the UAE. We don't have to be missionaries or pastors to advance the gospel. God has brought you here to share the gospel with your colleagues, with your friends, with your neighbors. God uses faithful individuals in difficult circumstances whose ambition is to glorify Christ in their lives 
to advance the gospel. He can use us. God teaches us in order to find true, genuine joy. This passage teaches us in order to find true, genuine joy, we need to put the advance of the gospel at the center of our ambitions. God is the one at the end of the day who advances the gospel. And we can trust Him for that. We don't have to trust in our personalities. We don't have to trust in our ability to to speak. We trust the sovereignty of God. We make ourselves available. We may look at our lives and our situation and think that living here in the UAE with all of these rules and all of these religious restrictions will be setbacks for us. But understand what Paul is telling us today. We are on the winning team. And once we realize this and reorient our thinking and our our ambitions to align with God's ambition, we will reap the joyful consequences. Paul here, looking at all of this, says, understand, when the gospel is proclaimed, God himself will build his church. God himself will advance the gospel. God himself will build a church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. You cannot prevent that. Your situations cannot hinder that. Your enemies cannot stop that. As Christians, we have to have a fundamentally different view than the world can have about how much our situations and our outside influences can actually stop the true thing that has to happen in this world, the establishment of the kingdom of God, the advance of the gospel. Last week we saw in verse 6, Paul saying, the good work that God began, he will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ. Let us pray. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And let us work towards that day with the time the Lord has given us intentionally, purposefully, seeking how we can proclaim his name and advance the kingdom for God's glory. Pray with me. Dear Father, we have exceedingly small faith. And we ask you for forgiveness. God, we look at our situations and often we despair and we become anxious and we worry. But God, your son, when he walked this earth, taught us that it's just faith, the size of the mustard seed that's able to move mountains. The size of a mustard seed that grows into a tree, the biggest tree in the garden where birds can rest on the branches. And so we pray, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, strengthen us that the gospel would progress and advance. Lord, we pray, build your kingdom through us, in spite of us, over us, under us, around us. Lord, let us rejoice. Let us find our joy in the very gospel that has the power to save. 
no matter what is happening, the gospel will advance as you promise, as Christ is proclaimed. May our faith be in that, Lord. And through your Son's name we ask. Amen.